you're just joining us, welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to start uh, this morning's sermon a little different than normal. I'm not going to read the text right at the beginning because it's a, it's a fairly big portion of text. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to go through it and, and we'll read it as we go along. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. For thousands and thousands of years, you have revealed yourself. Men have written it down by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And now you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through this word. Father, would you prepare our hearts this morning to receive what you have revealed for us? Would you work powerfully through your spirit in our hearts as we hear your word read and preached this morning? And by your mercy and grace, Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Lord, I pray this morning that any ideas we have about you that have not come from your word, have not come from you, but have come from our own imaginations, have come from others' imaginations, Lord, would you would you expose those this morning, Father, that we may believe in you, the one true and living God, and who you've revealed yourself to, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, one of the main themes in Habakkuk that we saw last week and that we'll see this week and next week as well, one of the main themes even in just all of the Old Testament is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the, the idea, the, the fact that God controls everything. You, you heard that uh, just in the song we just sang, Behold Your God. And you heard that in the passage that Dustin just read. God is sovereign over all things. This is his world. We're going to see that in Habakkuk this morning. But not everybody likes that idea, in fact, many people hate the idea of the sovereignty of God. People hate the idea of a God who is in control, and especially a God who tells them what to do. People hate the idea of a sovereign God for many reasons. Even some who call themselves Christians. Just this week, in fact, I think just a couple of days ago, 22 Christian Christian, U.S. Army chaplains have banded together to seek the removal of one of their own, uh, Senior Chaplain Colonel Moon H. Kim. Uh, why have they sought to remove? I think they're actually seeking a court-martial against him. Why? Well, because he sent out an email that included a small booklet, many, maybe some of you have seen this, by John Piper, entitled Coronavirus in Christ. Uh, the chaplains are angry because in this booklet, Pastor John Piper speaks of God's sovereign control of the universe and even over things like coronavirus. These chaplains were incensed by the idea 
that this was not a random thing that happened. These chaplains were angered by the idea that God judges sin and that coronavirus might in some way be a judgment for some sins on some people. They can't handle the idea. These, these so-called Christian chaplains can't stand the idea of a sovereign God. Why? Because again, a, a God who is sovereign cannot be comprehended. A God who is sovereign holds people accountable for their sins. And because a God who is sovereign has the authority to declare what is right and what is wrong. But, but as we will see today, no matter who believes what, no one gets to decide who God is or how he operates because he is God. So it's not up to you or me to decide if God is sovereign or not. These chaplains have instead crafted a God in their own image who ironically agrees with everything that they say. They've shaved off the pieces of the Bible that disagree with what they want to believe. But the saddest part of this is that God's sovereignty in scripture, it's, this is not just some abstract idea. The idea of God's sovereignty is the greatest comfort and consolation to those who know God. As one author put it, quote, God's sovereignty is the pillow upon which the Christian rests their head at night. And, and so these so-called teachers have not only robbed themselves of this comfort, but are robbing others. But how is God's sovereign control of all things a comfort? I mean, it's for sure confusing. That's what Habakkuk is confused about. But how is it a comfort? Well, that's one of the things that's revealed to us in our text this morning. So would you turn there with me? Habakkuk chapter 1. Starting in verse 12, we're going to be looking at chapter one, verse 12, all the way through chapter two, verse 20, but we're going to break it down in, in sections this morning. Now, now last, last time we left Habakkuk, he had complained to God. Remember about the injustice that he had seen in Judah at the time. And God had answered Habakkuk. I've been working on this problem and here's what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, same thing. And they're going to come in. And destroy Judah. Now, now, so we're going to, that's, that's right where we left off. God, Habakkuk had questioned God and God had answered. And that's all God had said. I'm working on it. I'm going to destroy Judah with a wicked pagan empire, Babylon. Violence is coming from God's hand. And so this, this leaves Habakkuk kind of even more confused. God, Habakkuk was confused at how God could look, overlook injustice in Judah. But now it seems like God is using injustice and using violence, all the things that Habakkuk was opposed to and that he thought God was opposed to, to answer Habakkuk's prayer. God's answer just raises more questions. But Habakkuk doesn't give up. He, he had boldly come to God in faith with his questions. And this week, he continues to wrestle with God in prayer. And the outline of the text this week is very similar. We're going to look at Habakkuk's second complaint. 
So he's going to complain or, or question God one more time. And God's going to answer again. And so that's how we'll break it down. So, so how did Habakkuk respond to God's declaration that he is raising up the Chaldeans to come and inflict violence upon Judah? Well, his response is plain. How can God use a wicked nation as his tool to judge his own people? In other words, how can God use sin as part of his purposes? How is that just? Let's, let's take a look at Habakkuk's response here, starting in verse 12. We'll be reading through verse 17. Here's what he says, Habakkuk 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like, like crawling things that, that have no ruler. He brings them, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations? Ever? You can, you can feel, again, the tension in Habakkuk's heart and mind as he's seeking to understand and comprehend what God is doing. God's confused him even more. Now, remember, God had just revealed to Habakkuk that he's raising up this violent, wicked army to come lay siege to Judah, God's people. Judah is where Jerusalem is, the holy city, the temple. But, but again, look at, look at the language of the text. This is the language of faith, not of unbelief. Confused and perplexed faith, but faith, nonetheless, this is not the language of doubt. Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You can hear, this is the language of intimacy and covenant with God. God may be confusing Habakkuk right now. Habakkuk may not be able to understand why God is doing or what he's doing. He may not be able to see his larger plan, but he is still my God, my Holy One. See, Habakkuk here is assuring himself that God is eternal. Are you not from everlasting? He is from everlasting. Habakkuk knows that. Habakkuk knows the God he worships. He knows that he's eternal. And, and if God is eternal, then God is unchangeable. And if God is unchangeable, then his promises are unchangeable. And, th and that's what confuses Habakkuk. And so you can hear him reassuring himself. Are you not from everlasting? You can, you can hear his thought process. He is from everlasting. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. We shall not die. God has made promises to us. And so somehow in this judgment, we shall not die. In other words, God will remain faithful to his promises. Habakkuk doesn't understand how he doesn't understand what God's doing, but he knows that God will be faithful because he knows that God is from everlasting. That's, that's the implicit reasoning in the text. He knows that Israel cannot be finally and totally destroyed. 
because God's promises rest with them. Habakkuk doesn't know much else at this point, but he's holding on to that in faith. Somehow God's promises will stand, but Habakkuk's not satisfied with that. Look, look where he goes next. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. Speaking of the Chaldeans, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So God has spoken. God has just spoken that message to Habakkuk. Habakkuk immediately believes it. He believes God's word. He says, okay, you've ordained them as a judgment. You have established them for reproof. Habakkuk, again, affirms every word that God has spoken. He's trying to understand it, though. Remember, God had said in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is God's work. This is what God is doing. God is not passive in this historical moment. God is not simply allowing the Chaldeans to come and lay siege to Judah. God is not simply telling Habakkuk that he can foresee that in the future happening. God has said, I am raising up the Chaldeans to lay siege to Judah. And a siege in the ancient world is not a pretty thing. In a siege, people starve to death. In a siege, in in an assault on a city. I mean, it's all the things you could think of. Destruction, pillaging, murder, rape. This is not a pretty picture, but Habakkuk affirms God has ordained the Chaldeans as a judgment, a reproof against Judah, a correction, a rebuke. And when the Chaldeans come, and they did, we know in history, this happens, they burned the temple to the ground. This is not an accident. God had ordained this to happen as a correction to Judah, his people. God has is bringing them and raising them up for this very purpose because of the wickedness of Judah. But, but this presents a problem for Habakkuk and probably for you as well. Now, but, but notice what Habakkuk's problem is. Habakkuk's problem is not judgment. That's actually what he was wanting God to do in his first question. He, he doesn't question the fact that God has a right to judge. He has a problem with how God is judging in this instance. What is Habakkuk's problem? The Chaldeans. Like, like, wait a second, God. I'm good with you judging Israel. That's actually what I wanted. But them? How can you use a more sinful people than we are to judge our sin? That that just doesn't make any sense here. I, I mean, the Chaldeans, a violent, drunken, murderous raping, slave-capturing civilization, you're going to use them? I mean, couldn't you just send a pandemic or something? That's kind of morally neutral. Why are you, how can you use these people as a tool of your judgment? The holy and pure God who, whose eyes are too pure to even look at evil, and yet you're using this evil as a tool? That's what he says. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong? How can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the Chaldeans? The wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Right? Habakkuk saying, Lord, I, I know we're bad, but we're like a thousand times worse. How are you going to favor them against us? It just doesn't, it does not compute in Habakkuk's mind. These, these Babylonians, these Chaldeans, they're not 
nice guys. When, when cities are attacked and sieged, they bring all sorts of things, starvation, death, rape, and slavery. This is brutal ancient warfare. Habakkuk knows this. God knows this. Habakkuk describes what the Babylonians do in verses 13 through 17. And we know historically this is what they did. They would literally hook people by their mouths and drag them off. They would, we have pictures of from Babylon of them, not pictures, uh, engravings of them throwing nets over people and literally dragging them off. To try to get a sense of maybe what Habakkuk is feeling, just a small sense. Analogies are not perfect. But, but to try to get a sense of how twisted this might sound to Habakkuk, imagine a person praying to God uh, on behalf of, of America's kind of national sins, right? Abortion, things like that. And praying to God, Lord, you need to somehow judge our country for the wicked that we've, the, the evil that we've committed. And God's answer is, don't worry, I'm raising up the North Koreans and they're going to come in and destroy the whole country. If you're kind of thinking, well, that's ridiculous. God would never do that. That's exactly how Habakkuk's feeling. Like what? That, that, no, that doesn't make any sense. That's not right. They're, they're evil. Why would you use them? That, that's exactly how Habakkuk's feeling. And yet this is what's happening. It, it's, there's no questioning that. The sinless, pure, holy God, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, is using them. He has ordained it and he has established it. Those are Habakkuk's words. He is bringing it. The wicked will destroy the righteous. That is going to happen. And to Habakkuk, as well as perhaps you, it seems a little hypocritical of God. That's, that's what Habakkuk is saying. God, aren't you, you know, too pure to look on evil? How does this make any sense? How is God going to prosper a God-hating nation? It, it's hard to hear for Habakkuk and for us as well. It just doesn't make sense. But, but Habakkuk has received his first answer from God. He's more confused. And so he's made his second complaint. And now look at chapter two, verse one. Here's how he ends his answer. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk says, I'm going to stay right here, Lord, until you answer me. And this is not so much a proud response. This is a lot of the prophets use this language. This is the language of a prophet saying, I'm not going anywhere until I receive a divine revelation that answers this. You see, because Habakkuk knows that divine revelation is his only hope. That's the only way he's going to receive an answer. He knows that he needs a word from God himself. He's, he's not going to philosophize about this. He's not going to ask his friends. He's going directly to God himself, and he wants and needs an answer from God himself. And I think this is instructive for us as well. Because again, these issues, these kind of theological issues that Habakkuk is dealing with are ones that we have in our own hearts as well. But there's a temptation. Do we go to God for the answers or do we go somewhere else? 
When you have a question about God or you are confused with what is happening, do you look to his own divine revelation or you look somewhere else? Well, like Habakkuk, I want to encourage you. There's no other place to go but to God himself. And we have God's word to us. So even if things are confusing, let us go to God for our answers. Let us not be like those chaplains who have just gotten rid of any part of God they don't like. In Holy Scripture, God has sufficiently revealed for us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And so Habakkuk waits for God to speak. He, he waits for God's answer. Now, once again, in his grace, God answers Habakkuk. God never owes us an answer, but in his grace, he answers us. And in his grace, he answers Habakkuk. Again, God's answer has kind of three main parts, three main thrusts to it. And so we'll break it down that way. And in all three of these thrusts have to do with how God's sovereignty works and how we need to respond to it. That's what Habakkuk is, is confused and, and upset about. He knows God is sovereign, right? We've already seen him affirm that. He's not questioning that. He just doesn't understand how God works the way that he does. He's in a sense, questioning God's justice, not his sovereignty necessarily. His, his view of God is right, but his perspective is too small. And so God's going to blow that up a little bit right here. So, so let's hear God's answer. So there's, there's three things we see about God's sovereignty here in God's answer. The first thing is this. God's sovereignty is sure, but seemingly slow to us. God's sovereignty is sure, but seemingly slow to us. In other words, God always accomplishes everything that he wants to accomplish exactly when he wants to accomplish it. But to us, it often seems slow or even uh, not perceptible. His promises to us are always fulfilled, fulfilled, but sometimes to us in our limited perspective, it seems slow. Look at, look at Habakkuk chapter two, verse two and three. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he who runs may read it. In other words, write it big so that you could read it really quickly. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Do, do you see that? God is sovereign. Everything comes in its appointed time. Everything. Now, now here, God is obviously specifically talking about a vision that Habakkuk will receive, probably the content of chapter three, which we'll look at next week, but it has an appointed time. And notice what God says. It will surely come. It will not delay. Even though God acknowledges that to Habakkuk, it might seem slow. So although it seems slow, it's coming at the exact time appointed by God. There's no delay. There, there is never a delay in the fulfillment of God's promises. Why? Because God is completely sovereign. Now, again, some Christians and others try to deny this. But God's complete control of the universe is asserted not only here in Habakkuk, but all over the place in Scripture. You've already heard some other ones this morning. But I want to show you just a few more examples of, of just how the Bible pictures God's control. The first one is Isaiah chapter 46, 8 through 11. Isaiah chapter 46, 8 through 11. L listen to how this describes God. 
And specifically in this passage, he's comparing himself to the other gods of the nations, the false gods, making fun of them because they control nothing. This is what he says. Remember this. This is God speaking. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So how is God unique? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. That's, that's the words of God. I've declared the end from the beginning. When I speak, it happens. God is in complete control at all times. Proverbs 16.33, even over the small things. The lot, which is like a, like a die. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even the role of a die, which is like the prime example of something that we would consider random. It's every decision is from the Lord. God also determines when people are born and where they live. Acts 17 verse 26. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why were you born the year that you were born, the day that you were born, the minute that you were born, in the country that you were born, in the city that you were born? That was God's plan for you. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Glorious passage. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, speaking of God, who works all things according to to the counsel of his will. All things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he doesn't consult anyone else except himself. He is his own counselor because he's the infinite, perfect God of the universe. All things are worked by him, for him, and to him. God created the world and he rules over it with complete sovereignty. Nothing comes to pass unless it has been decreed by God. His purposes are never thwarted. All things come in their appointed time. Because of this, we can be 100% certain that God's promises to us will come to pass exactly when they are supposed to come to pass. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need one. Everything is going according to plan, always doesn't always seem like it to us. It doesn't always feel like it to us. But God acknowledges that. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. He's given us this to help us in these times when it feels that way. And he also acknowledges to us that it seems slow, which is just an amazing thought. God is so sovereign and so wise that he knows how things seem to us. And so he gives us things like this. Like, I know it seems slow to you, but wait. Timing is perfect. God's plans, God's promises are never delayed. Now, you might not be able to see it. You might not be able to feel it. But God is constantly and tirelessly at work in the world, fulfilling his promises. 
so you can hear him assuring Habakkuk, Habakkuk, my promises to Israel stand and will be fulfilled exactly when they are supposed to, exactly how they are supposed to, even though you can't see it now. God's sovereignty is sure, even though it seems slow to us sometimes. The second thing is that those who trust in this sovereign God will live. Those who trust in this sovereign God will live. Those who humbly submit and trust in God, though they can't yet understand the entirety of his plan, will live. Those who remain faithful to God in the midst of confusion will live. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol or the grave. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. God now shows Habakkuk really that there are two ways to live. Pride or faith. Self-reliance or reliance on God? Arrogant, uh, puff-uppedness or humble submission? And the text says the way of pride is like a cancer in your soul. The, the, the word for puffed up, see where it says in verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. That word puffed up, the Hebrew word is the same word for tumor. It's the prideful soul. It's like a tumor. It's bloated. It's swollen. It's, it's abnormal. It's like a growth. It's, it's grotesque. It's ruined. This is, this is the Chaldeans. That's what God's referring to. But it's not just the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. This is, this is the way of all who reject God's truth, who reject God's word, who reject God's son, who reject the sovereignty of God and say, you will not be sovereign over me. You see, the proud person rejects God's marvelous offer of grace and instead opts to save themselves by their own efforts. And this pride, this pride, is like a tumor in their soul. And their soul is not upright within them. Their soul is, is wicked. That's what he talks about with the wine. Wine is a traitor, right? If you've ever drank too much, right? What happens? The more you drink, the more you want to drink until you drink so much that you pass out. Well, pride is the same way. It, it ruins your judgment until you can't get enough. So this prideful man is never at rest. His greed is as wide as the grave. Like death, he never has enough. It never satisfies. I must have more. Cancer. Pride. But, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, that sentence alone is its own sermon in entirety quoted all over the place in the New Testament. But what is it saying? Simply this, that the, the one who is righteous will live his life by his faith in God. And, and put another way, the person whose trust is in the living God lives their life 
in a way that shows that their faith is in God. So what is God saying to Habakkuk? Habakkuk, trust me. He's not saying it's going to be pretty. And again, well, next week in chapter three, we'll kind of see what Habakkuk's lot is in all this, how his life ends up. He says, trust me, Habakkuk, remain faithful. Even though your entire world is about to collapse, trust me, trust me. You see, the wicked people in Israel were not righteous. They did not live by faith in God. They had rejected God's laws. They made their own way. They were proud, just like the Chaldeans. This is why God's judgment was coming upon them. But there were a remnant of righteous people. And they would weather this storm of Babylonian invasion, just like the rest. The Babylonians are just going to kill everyone indiscriminately. But the righteous will live by their faith in God in this life and into eternity. By faith, they received the righteousness of God. And by faith, they trust in God through all the devastation that is coming upon them, even in suffering. So God's sovereignty is sure, but seemingly slow to us. And those who trust in God will live by that faith. The proud will not. Now, number three, we see that God can and does use sin and sinners for his purposes. But it will all be judged in the end. God can and does use sinners for his purposes, but they will be judged for their actions in the end. In other words, God's plan for this world includes sinners and sinful actions. But he will ultimately judge the wicked for their sin. All the while, God remains guiltless of any of it. How does this work? How is it right? Well, that's, that's really the core of Habakkuk's problem. Remember, Habakkuk wanted judgment. He doesn't have a problem with judgment. But he doesn't understand how God could use the wicked to inflict his judgment. How is that just? How can God use sin? Just sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, God doesn't explain this to Habakkuk. He doesn't explain exactly how it works. Our brains are too small. Our perspective is too small. But what he does do is assure Habakkuk that the Chaldeans will ultimately be judged and destroyed for their actions. So God pronounces now to Habakkuk five woes against Babylon. In other words, Five oracles of judgment against the nation of Babylon. Specific prophetic judgments against their specific sins. Assuring Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I know how wicked they are. I see every evil that they commit and I will hold them accountable for it. God's sovereignty is sure. And so Habakkuk can take comfort that the good and just God will meet all things out at the end. No one gets away with anything. Look at verse six. Shall not all these, speaking of the nations that Babylon has ruined, take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? In other words, one day the nations that have been conquered will mock Babylon. There's five woes. The first one is essentially the plunderer will be plundered. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors? suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you 
for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell with them. Babylon, you've plundered many nations. One day you too will be plundered. The secure, those who think they have security will be wrenched from that security. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God will be victorious regardless of what Babylon does. They're nothing to him. The humiliators will ultimately be humiliated. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness, in order to humiliate them. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, all who dwell in them. The foolishness of idol worship will also be exposed. Look at verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But notice the contrast. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's judgment upon Babylon. Babylon will fall. The Chaldeans will be held accountable before God for every sin that they've committed in their attack against Israel and in their attack against every other nation. They will be silent for God without any excuse to offer. And friends, the thing about this prophecy is this has been fulfilled. I mean, this was fulfilled 40 years after Habakkuk wrote. You can read the story of it in the book of Daniel. Daniel was in Babylon when the Persians invaded Babylon and destroyed them. But it's only been partially fulfilled. Because God's physical temporal judgment on Babylon was only part of the judgment. You see, judgment is still coming. That the Babylonian empire experienced this temporal judgment, but they will still face ultimate judgment on the last day. That that last day when all human beings will be called into account. On that day, God will execute final justice on every sin. In fact, Babylon is a stand-in throughout the rest of scripture as kind of a, a, a type or a metaphor for everyone who opposes God. All evil will finally be avenged. Everyone will be silent before God, exposed and without excuse. 
all who seemed to prosper in this life, all who seemed to be secure, all who crafted idols or a God in their own image will be exposed. And that, as we look at this world and see the evil things that happen, should be a great comfort to us. Right? We've all felt that sense of, of injustice. When you hear these stories of, uh, uh, you know, they found this German guy who turns out was running one of the concentration camps and he's like 99. And so they take him to court and they try to try him and he gets, you know, 500 years in prison and he lives in prison for two months and then dies. And there's this sense of like, there's, that's, there's, there's no way that we can have enough justice. That's just wrong. This man did all these horrible things and lived a completely normal, prosperous life until maybe the last couple months of his life. There's, there's this sense of justice was not done. There's, there's no, no completion. But there will be. And that's the comfort that God's justice brings us. He sees everything and all will be made right on the last day. It's a comfort to us. No sin will go unpunished. But, but it should also be sobering to us, right? Because not only the Babylonians, but everyone will stand before God on the last day. Exposed, and as Romans says, without excuse. We will have no defense that we can make. Hopeless. If we stand on our own merits, in our pride, self-reliant, you will be rightly and justly condemned. Right? We've all heard people talk like that. I'll work it out with God when I get there. Doesn't work. That's the pride. We are just as proud as the Babylonians when we think like that. But God's sovereignty is sure. His judgment is coming. But, but, God in his love for us, in his great wisdom and mercy, has provided by his sovereignty a way of salvation. You see, the, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of, the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, was not an accident. It was not plan B. The crucifixion of the son of God was not plan B. This was the plan from the beginning. This is what's behind all of the Old Testament. Everything is pointing forward to Christ. This is one of the reasons why God would fulfill all of his promises to Israel, not only because he can't lie, but because he was bringing the Christ through the line of David. God would purchase the people for himself with the blood of his own son. This is what he's driving at. Though Israel had to be judged, a remnant would remain. God has decreed in his sovereignty to save his people. You see this in Acts, right? When you, when you think of this question of, of how can God use sin for his own purposes? Look at how this, these two things play out in Acts. We read this earlier, but look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is Peter's address to the crowds at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, listen to the language. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's sovereign plan and the wicked actions of men perfectly united in the salvation of sinners. Same language is used in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. This is the, the early church praying. Prayer begins, sovereign Lord. But here's what they say, verse 27. Speaking of Jerusalem, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was not plan B. God was not surprised that Jesus was killed. God did not oh no, people sin, now I have to do something about it. This was God's plan of redemption from, as Ephesians says, before the world began. The text is clear. God can and does use sinners for his purpose. God sovereignly ordains sinful actions of men for his own purposes, and yet they are held accountable. This is true of the Chaldeans, and it was true of the death of God's own son. God is sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. To those who love God, this is a comforting and glorious truth, if not at times confusing. But to those who hate him, whose souls are puffed up like a tumor, this makes them hate him even more. The prideful reject this God. and Because of that, they stand condemned, just like the Chaldeans. But the righteous live every breath of this life by faith in this God and stand before him clothed in the perfect righteousness of his son. Even though we don't understand everything all the time. Do you see the beauty of this truth? Because of the amazing power of God's sovereignty, he can turn the most wicked event of all time the crucifixion of the perfect, innocent Son of God into the most glorious expression of his love. In his Son, God has provided the very righteousness that he requires. Those who place their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ, receive the righteousness of Christ. And the beauty of that passage in Acts chapter 2, right? Peter says, you crucified him. Even though it was a part of God's predestined plan, you did it. And then what happens at the end of that? They say, what do we do? We're guilty of the blood of the son of God. Peter doesn't say nothing. You're going to hell. Peter doesn't say nothing. You God haters get out of here. Peter doesn't draw his sword and go and kill them. Peter says, repent and be baptized and forgiveness will be yours. And so the very ones who were guilty of the blood of the son of God found forgiveness in that same blood. This is the beauty of the sovereignty of God because God isn't just sovereign. He's sovereign. He's merciful. He's good. And he's gracious. That 
God. It's good news that he's sovereign. And so those who place their faith in Jesus Christ live by that faith. Faith is the beginning of the Christian life. And it's the rest of the Christian life. It's how we come into Christ by faith in Christ. And it's how we live in Christ. Those who are in those in Christ are righteous by faith. And those who are righteous by faith in Christ are the righteous that live by faith in Christ. This is what God has sovereignly provided for us, brothers and sisters. God is sovereign. His promises will come to pass. His plan is perfect. Doesn't mean it always feels good. Again, that's what we'll see next week. So the call to us is simple, if not easy. Persevere in faith. That was God's message to Habakkuk. And that is God's message to you and me this morning. Things may look crazy right now. Injustice may go, may happen. But God sees everything. He will settle it all in the end. Every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. Every heart will be satisfied in him. And in the words of Lord of the Rings, every sad thing will become untrue. God is working his plan for his glory and for our glory in Jesus Christ. We know how the story ends, brothers and sisters. It is sure. We will dwell with God and each other on the new heavens and the new earth forever. His promises are sure. He will fulfill them. In the meantime, no matter what comes, live by faith in this God. Persevere in faith. I want to end with the words of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Speaking of God, listen to this and let this just comfort your soul. This is the God who was sovereign over everything. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Trust him, brothers and sisters. Even when you don't understand. Even when it seems that the world is crashing down. His work is perfect and all his ways are justice. He is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We cannot persevere in faith unless you strengthen us to do so. So, Father, when our faith is weak, strengthen us. Ours is the prayer of the man from the gospel according to Mark. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to have faith even when things don't make sense. Help us to believe the things that you have revealed to us in your word, even though we can't fully comprehend every piece of it. Lord, I pray for all those watching right now who are in some type of pain or suffering or difficult season. Would the truth of your goodness, graciousness, your mercy, and your sovereignty be a balm to their soul in this time? Lord, would it be the pillow that they rest their head on at night? You are working for us a weight of glory that is beyond comparison. In every bit of suffering, Father, help us to believe that this morning. 
Help us to trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our last song this morning together. Yet not I, but Christ.